Welcome to another edition of the Dogger Pass Podcast. This is for UFC Vegas 51. I'm Paul Shaughnessy, joined on the line by Cody Saftik. Coming off the heels of UFC 273. You know, mistakes were made. Uh, Pichelle Whisper, no more. I got a little bit too hyped about uh, Hamza Chemaev. I will say that. Um, I think we saw some of his limitations. But I see some people thinking that, like, Oh, this guy's our boss. It's like, I don't know. He, t- he just took a step up to the number two guy in the division. Yeah. He was a little bit scared to go to the mat with him. And Gilbert Burns, I-, I think he was just scared to go into his guard and didn't know what would happen if he got in there. I mean, he's been training with Darren Hill. So it's like he probably clearly hasn't been working with somebody with that type of guard. Um, uh, we saw some limitations, but we saw a guy who's got absolute heart and fury. So... I mean, I, I saw they opened up like the Colby versus Hamzat line last night. A bunch of people jumped on to the plus 170 on Covington. If you guys want to get me some dog money on Hamzat, uh, I'll, I'll play. So we'll see how it all shakes out on that front. But uh, yeah, a little bit of a rough card. Luckily, the two plays that I had in the main event saved it from being an absolute bloodbath. But we're here to talk about UFC Vegas 51 which does not have the star power um, that we got used to last week by any stretch of the imagination. There's 14 fights. Do you have anything? I know you already have your recap show, so I'm sure you don't really have anything to add about UFC, uh, UFC 273 there. Well, the only thing I will add is pretty much everything went wrong. We needed our top ticket guy, Peter Yon, and he lost. My God. And we knew it was going to be a greasy decision. Didn't go our way. The two split decisions on the card, both of them, did not go our way. The three women's MMA bouts where we took the slight favorites in all three, Pat Man Siri, might as well take the dog. All three of them lost. And last but not least, most heartbreaking of all, you told me about Alexei Olenek, Paul. You really did. And to make matters worse, it wasn't just a I told you so kind of thing. You mentioned the scarf hold. The scarf hold neck crank. Because I mean, where's my boot here? Jared because, Finn. Hey, oh. he does it every time. He does it every time. He's always got one more left in him. But I didn't believe. I didn't believe, Paul. I thought myself, 44 years old, giving up 20 to 30 pounds, fighting a guy that is apparently got a BJJ black belt. Did I mention that? Yeah, that's that's nonsense. We said I said that I said that that was nonsense. I don't believe that black belt. He got that black belt at Walmart. That's you know what you're having a always. He's struggling. Struggling down the stretch. Man of his word. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Got the, the greasy Bum entrails. Bum shit. The only thing worse than that performance by me was the performance by Jared Vandera, who really should have left his gloves in the middle of the ring. But anyways, new week, new stretch, new luck. Let's get back at her, buddy. Yeah, we got Vicente Luque taking on Bilal Muhammad in the main main event of UFC Vegas 51. It's a rematch from uh, from many, many years ago. It was the Conor McGregor card, I believe, versus Eddie Alvarez at uh, uh, in New York City. Uh, and it's the only time Bilal Muhammad has ever been knocked out. Got knocked out in the first round against Vicente Luque. Minus 165, Vicente Luque. Plus 145, Muhammad, I'm sure both you can make the argument like both of these guys have significantly changed. And if we've learned anything from Peter Yan, 
versus Aljamain Sterling. It's that just because you've seen this play out one way doesn't mean it's going to happen the exact same way again in the in the world of mixed martial arts. Uh, I mean, I'm still leaning towards... Not even leaning. I like Vicente Luque to get the job done here. He's trained with so many wrestlers, and I know that Bilal has put on... Uh, has put together a pretty good wrestling game. He's he's kind of a jack-of-all-trades. He's got all the skills. The chin has been usually pretty good, except for when he took on Luke in that one spot. He just got caught. It is what it is. But I feel like if Bilal is taking him to the ground, trying to control him there, over the course of five rounds, he could get, he could get caught in something tricky in Vicente Luque's guard. Um, Luque is not hard to take down, but once you get down there, he's he's a whole bunch of danger. And on the feed, and in terms of just somebody with a little bit more power and ability to finish fights, I'm, I'm favoring Luke too. So I think he's the rightful favorite. Luke my pick. What about yours? Yeah, honestly, I would have favored Luke and I still do, but I would have favored him by a wide margin, if really? not for Bilal Muhammad's last fight against Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. And it's not like Wonderboy knows how to wrestle, and we already, already know that that's the path to victory. It's that he was absolutely all over him. He mauled him. He did. It really gave you a sense that if he fights those kind of game plans, it looked like he could fight for five rounds, no problem. And there's another thing with Vincente Luque. Like, he goes hard. Everything he throws, he throws with a lot of power into it. He's got some dynamic technique. He throws in combinations. A lot of it's explosive action. We've seen him fight in three-round fights where it's tooth and nail going into that third round. Uh, what if it was to go an extra couple of rounds? Now, I think he's in world-class shape. He's got world-class training partners. He's got world-class almost everything. His grappling is good. His striking is good. His takedown defense maybe could use a little bit of work. But it's going to have to be a, a rinse and repeat Bilal Muhammad 10 takedowns kind of night. And I don't know if he's going to get the 10 takedowns. If it stays at range, much quicker hand speed, much quicker striking from Vincent Luque. And I don't think it'll be like last time. He'll just catch him and knock him out. But again, when you look up Bilal Muhammad, his record's a little bit deceiving in that since that last fight. <laughs> so Randy Brown, that's a good win, but this, it's five years ago, right? But Jordan Mean released. Tim Means, not what he used to be. Chen's ran counter, no longer with the promotion. Jeff Neal, at least there is a guy with a little bit of power. But didn't really come pan out to everybody's expectations. Curtis Melander, Takashi Sato, Lyman Good, Diago Lima, no longer with the promotion. Leon Edwards wins the first round. Then it's an unfortunate eye poke in the second round, but he looked much faster. He looked much more fluid and he was just going to, in my opinion, I don't know, it was a second round, no contest, but it seemed like Leon Edwards was just going to cruise on him. They never even book a rematch. They're just like, yeah, yeah, we've seen enough of this one. I think when he fights a fluid striker, more than likely that's what's going to happen. Old Damian Maya, not a credible that credible of a victory. And that's what caused me to think in the Wonderboy fight. You know what? He doesn't really fight a whole lot of good strikers. Wonderboy is a good striker, if not a great striker. It's Wonderboy's inability to stuff the takedowns and get his back off the cage. And Vincente Luque doesn't really have those same problems. So, yeah, yeah, honestly, I got to go with Vincente at the end of the day. The line's not terrible, minus 175, I believe, in favor of uh, Luque. I would agree with that for the most part, and uh, I will be picking him. But there is some danger here in Bilal, especially if he can extend it out into those later rounds. We got uh, Gadzi, Omar Gadziev. Oh, my Gadziev. That's a, I, I kind of feel like that's phonetically how you should pronounce it. Uh, he's taking on Kyle Barallo. Two contender series guys. I have no idea why these guys are the co-main event. Maybe they're going to jumble up the order. But then you look up and down this card and you go, eh, you know, you can kind of just interchange everything. I, I, I'm kind of surprised, I guess, Devin Clark versus William Knight would have been, because of the amount of experience these guys have in the UFC, probably a better co-main event. But 
we're not here to talk about belt plays. We're here to talk about these guys in action. Um, Gadzi is kind of your stereotypical, you know, Dagestani Russian grappler. Um, stand up seems to be a little bit of a work in progress. He's, he's not completely a, a fish out of water there. Um, when he takes you down, he wraps up the legs and he tries to go to, tries to, tries to smash. He tries to take you, uh, you know, grind you out basically. Borallo, he was on the uh, contender series twice. First, uh, first time out there. Had a real tooth and nail fight with Aaron Jeffrey. There was a lot of like standing cage work. Both guys seemed a little bit fatigued, particular as we got into like late in the second round, uh, into the third round. Comes back, gets a first round finish over Jesse Murray in a follow up, like a month later, contender series fight where, I mean, the fight barely even got started. I mean, if this fight stays on the feet, I doubt it will. Um, Barallo probably hits harder. He has a longer reach. He's definitely seems to be like more of a, he's got a thicker frame for sure. Omer Gadziev is taller than him. Um, I think uh, Gadzi, you know me with Russians. Um, it's hard for me to get off of the Russian train. I think Gadzi is able to take him down, neutralize him, uh, not necessarily get a finish, but do that enough to, uh, to secure a victory, probably by decision here. So it's Gadzi for me. What about you? Honestly, I'm not real confident on this one either way, but I would take the the slight dog shot, I think, in Kale Barral. I, I think the guy's actually a really smart fighter. I mean, his selection on strikes, his grappling, he seems like he's a thinking's man fighter, and then you see he comes out with this whole fight nerd mantra where you know he considers himself an analytical kind of guy, right? He's got a neck tat, which I don't understand how you could be a nerd with a neck tat because, I mean, I, I've never seen it, but all the same, I mean, he's fighting Canada's own Aaron Jeffrey, right? Middleweight tilt, and he had Jeffrey. I know you're saying it was a close fight because it wasn't like Jeffrey was outed by a stretch, but I thought he did an excellent job of controlling the entire fight. He got the takedowns over Jeffrey when he wanted them. He was outstriking Jeffrey at distance when he wanted them. He had the pressure when he when he when he should have put in pressure on. He wins a fairly clean decision, in my opinion. Should have got a word of contract. Doesn't get a word of contract. So I honestly believed it was a contract worthy of performance, good enough, and I was excited to see him in the UFC. Dane doesn't agree, but they gave him a short turnaround. I'll bet 205 pounds that Jesse Murray fight was. So he just stays in Las Vegas, slaps on 20 pounds, shows up and punches the guy out in the first round, and then gets his contract. Lots that you can like about this guy. Now, I, I don't know if he's dealing with injury or if he's dealing with some visa issues, but he had a layup against Dustin Stolfoot's uh, canceled, and he had a layup against Jamie Pickett canceled. Now, because he's pulling out of fights, the UFC's like, okay, you had your chance to fight the Dustin Stolfitzes of the world. Now you got to take Godzi or Magardiev. So I, I know it's going to be a tough fight. It's going to be a much tougher fight. But again, with Baral, he's a BJJ black belt. He's a judo black belt. The striking seemed decent enough. I think with Omar Godziev, you know, he's one of these strong physical type Russians. But if he does, if he goes out there and he gets the takedown, I'm hoping Baral can, is able to just hang on, survive, neutralize positions, maybe work his way back up. And then the longer this thing goes, hopefully Omar Godziev starts to run on fumes, is able to take over, maybe outstrike him a little bit. Listen, I got the fight closer lined to a pick him, maybe a dog or pass type situation. And because of that, I'll go ever so slight with Baral. All right, moving on down, we've got Miguel Baeza taking on Andre Fialo. Baeza is a minus 180 favorite. Fialo can be had for plus 155. Fialo is a bit of a banger. Um, technique isn't great, but he hits hard. And that seems to be probably the greatest path to victory that you can have over my Miguel Baeza, who's still young, who's still developing in the game, but 
I feel like that chin is definitely a big liability. Um, I don't have a strong lean on this one yet. I was wanting to hear what you had to say first. Yeah, so this is another fight where before I saw Fialo's last one, I probably would have written him off and said Baeza. Like, I've just never been that high up on Fialo for a long time. He was training out of American Kickboxing Academy. He was touted as being this, you know, next up-and-coming undefeated prospect. And I remember he fought Chidi and Jaquani on Bellator and gets knocked down in like 18 seconds. Bad performance, knocks down. It's 21 seconds, I can see here, right? Anyways, then he takes on my boy Chris, the action man, Curtis. Wow. Chris Curtis is going to put it on him. He does. He does. He just neutralizes him, controls all of the striking exchanges, slowly picks away at him, tires him out. TKOs him in the third round. Nice fight for Chris Curtis. Again, just not high on Fialo. Then he takes on this Antonio Carlos Jr. for LFA. Well, shame on me because I bet Fialo in this one. Minus 250 favorite over Antonio Carlos Jr., who hadn't fought in three years and was an 0-2 UFC washout. Like, just Fialo can surely win this one. Completely gasses out. Terrible performance. The guy's a bust. Now, he does have a little bit of power, as you mentioned, and he uses that power to good effect. Knocks out James Vick. Knocks out this Sang Hu Yu. Knocks out Lincoln Puig. And then Stefan Sekulich, another UFC veteran, able to go out there and knock him out. He does have decent hands. He's able to put some decent work together. I'm just not confident in his ability to fight that three rounds and when he takes some damage, you know, to come back and work his way back into it. So I load up on some Michelle Pereira. Like, I know this guy, and I know Michelle Pereira is going to put a beating on him. But not so, man. I mean, again, his striking is good. It is clean. He's no longer at AKA. He's at Sanford now. And I think you see how many world-class guys are coming out of that gym right now. The guy's in good shape, man. He's only 28 years old. He's had a couple early setbacks, but Chidi and Jaquani's banging it out in the UFC right now and doing good. And Chris, the action man, Chris, of course, banging it out in the UFC right now and doing quite well. So you can't even hold those losses against him. And everything else has been quite well. One thing he did good in the Michelle Pereira fight was as he started to tire, and as it looked like Pereira might put the heat on him a little bit and break him, he did an excellent job of fighting his way back in, countering. Even the third round, he was so gassed going into the third. He's sitting on a stool cooked, and Henry basically gives him an old slap and tells him, like, you, do you want this? This is what we're here for. This is what we're here for. You knew this was going to happen. This, these are the things you got to go through. And he just comes out ready to bang for the third round again, like pushes through it. So... He's done an excellent job of actually turning around my opinion of him. Miguel Beza, meanwhile, coming off the contender series, it looked like, yeah, he, this guy's going to be flashy. This guy's going to have a lot of skill. But, yeah, maybe it's that he leaves his head a little bit up in the air. Maybe it's that his striking's not good enough to just get a quick finish. His grappling's not qu good enough to just get a quick finish. So he needs to fight these guys for prolonged periods of time. And the longer they go, he becomes a liability. Of course, he got caught by Matt Brown once upon a time, but he's able to survive that one and put an aged Matt Brown away. But taking on the guys like Santiago Ponzinibbio, Chaos Williams, they're tough, they're durable, and they pack a lot of heat. And the longer these fights go, eventually he gets clipped. I remember the Ponzinibbio fights. Like, he starts well, he's getting his low kick game going, and just the longer this thing grinds out, Ponzinibbio just takes over for him. Now his output completely falls off, he gets beat up. The Chaos Williams fight, he's kind of looking like a dead in the, deer in the headlights. He doesn't really want to engage this guy. Dude, I don't blame him. You know, the ox fighter, Chaos Williams, <laughs> don't really want to engage the guy, but he allows it to slip away from him. Again, gets leg, it's mostly a lot, a whole lot of leg kicks here. And, uh, and then he gets clipped in the third round, a fight that he could have maybe won if he shored up a couple spots, but prolonged striking battles are not going in his favor. And when you think about Fialo, 28, still assumingly getting better, looked decent enough in his last fight, he probably does clip him at some point, right? So... I would lean towards Fialo, but it's not like there's a ton of confidence, especially if we expect this thing to be like a striking battle that gets extended into the second, maybe early into the third round, right? Yeah, so dogger pass. Dogger pass, and I'm thinking fight doesn't go the distance, which I don't currently have in front of me. 
I can see the under oh under one and a half. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they got to set as a one and a half. Chances are they're gonna go out there bang in the middle of the ring. Plus one fifty five for Fialo. That's a generous price tag. That's where I'd be going. Alrighty, I'm just looking up quickly for a fight doesn't go to decision. Isn't that DraftKings Sportsbook yet? Um, doesn't go is it's moving towards like minus one eighty five out there. Yeah, that's a. It's 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 starting to it's starting to head in that direction. It's not terrible. Maybe it could be a little parlay piece if you really think the chin gets cracked for Baeza, and Baeza's a finisher in his own right too. So I don't mind where your head's at on that one. All right, moving on down, we got Mera Bueno Silva taking on Wu Yanan. Minus four fifty for Bueno Silva, plus three forty for Wu Yanan. Interestingly, it's interestingly enough. Well, one, Marabueno Silva went full Bobby Green when she took on Mino Fioro. Like, getting hit, saying, nah, nah, that didn't hurt me. Finger wagging, doing all of that stuff. Which just leads the judges' cage side to believe, well, we know that that strike landed. And maybe it kind of bothered <laughs> her. Like, it didn't, doesn't help her cause whatsoever. It's probably something that you do when you just get kind of too excited in the cage. I wouldn't know, obviously. Never been in a uh, legalized cage fight. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the, there's problems with her, especially with this price tag. It, it really comes down to price. I don't think Wu Yanan is anything special. But minus 450 for someone who has very, very low volume in pretty much all of her fights, she should have a grappling advantage or she should have a submission grappling advantage. However, she's never landed a takedown in her career. She has two submission wins in the UFC, but that's because she's been taken down and been able to get it. Um, Wuyanon throws a little bit more volume. The much more punch, like the better strikes should be landed by Bueno Silva. I think Bueno Silva wins, but ugh, I cannot get to this minus 450 with, you know, the, the amount of volume that, that I was just talking about. The volume, like she's kind of like a 50 to 60 significant strike uh landed per fight type of fighter yeah minus 450 is just that's scaring me straight off of this fight um do you have any hot take on this one because it just looks like a straight up pass i don't want to even bet the dog i won't even say dog or pass because it's just a straight up pass yeah, no, I, I think Silva should win, right? I can make excuses for her in her losses and her wins, you know, not again, not terrible, but at the price tag, women's MMA, that's a no bueno, Paul. That's that a is no bueno. a no bueno, Silva. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, if I'm going to make excuses for her, here's a couple of them. So she armbars Jillian Robertson after getting taken down, and Jillian Robertson's a black belt, well-trained, who's actually a decent enough grappler. Mm -hmm. So it's not like she just armbarred a putz. It's a good armbar win, right? Then the Marina Moroz fight. Well, Marina Moroz is good. I think we can all agree with that. She's like a, a, a fringe top seven, top ten contender in the division. Throws a ton of volume. She actually fought a good game plan against her too. You know, Marsh Ford was aggressive. Got outstruck 139 to 88. Gave up two takedowns, but worked her way back up. Well, she got taken down late up in the, in the rounds. But anyways, 88 significant strikes landed. Did a good job of coming forward, biting down on her mouthpiece. Again, maybe there's something there. She saw uh, armbars Mara uh, Romero Barella, which is not impressive. She's also a BJJ black belt. It's not that credible of a victory. So you don't have to talk about that one. And then against Mino Fioro, Mino Fioro is just very elusive. You know, she fights a very Holly Holm-esque game plan, a Kaylin Chukagian-esque game plan where she's in and out, very lateral, very quick on her feet. She throws a lot of sidekicks. She throws a lot of distant finding uh, striking techniques that just keep her opponent at bay. So for a, a flat 
a footed plodding fighter like a shoot to box style fighter like uh, Bueno Silva, it's not exactly a, a great matchup for her, but she still does a fairly good job of moving forward. Lands 48 sniffing strikes. I know it looks like low volume, but 48 against Furo is 80, 90 against the average fighter who's not going to move that much. Mm-hmm. Now, Wu's only 25 years old. Conceivably, she should could and should be getting better, but she's just thrown so many issues so far in her career. I mean, she got outgrinded heavily by Gina Mazzani. That's a bad loss, right? The yeah. Laura Mueller fight, well, snatching an armbar on Mueller, it's not really the same level of a Jillian Robertson. It's really not the same level of a Mero Romero Barella, who's actually out of American Top Team as well. So it's just a little bit of a higher quality. Again, she threw a good volume in the Mizuki Inoue fight, and that led me to believe that maybe she would have a chance against Jocelyn Edwards, but... She was just out-muscled and beat up in that fight. Like She had almost nothing going for her. At range, you know, striking looked like, okay, work in progress. Maybe this is going to be your avenue. But, I mean, the output was there from Jocelyn Edwards. The power was there from Jocelyn Edwards. Whenever she did try to get up the uh, initiated clinch and get her up against the cage, she didn't really have much success. Does complete one takedown, but is unable to do anything with it. And then just proceeds to get beat up. So against Buena Silva, I think it's going to be much of the same. To stay standing, she's just going to march her backwards and land the big, meaningful shots. Taking her down is going to be a problem. And even if you did manage to take her down, she's too physical for you. She might be able to just throw up an armbar, be the better grappler, get the win. But at minus 450, that's a no bueno, Paul. That's a no bueno. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, the pick will be uh, Silva. but uh, She'll end up on I, your parlays. I don't know. I don't know that I – yeah, yeah, it will. But it'll be it lower down than – It'll be lower down than a minus 450 typically is, I would the, guess. The thing with when you make a parlay, yeah, the thing with when you make a parlay is if you've already got five people on it and you add a minus 450, it actually does juice it up. It's where do you put the minus 450. So that kind of price tag would suggest a top ticket, right? But you don't want a top ticket Maria Silva. It's kind of similar to the problem I had last week. So you know this because I talked to you on the preview show. I told you I don't want Peter Yan on my top ticket. think it's going to be a greasy decision. I think Aljo could fight one of these smart game plans and just wins the fight based on the point system, which is essentially what he did. I thought it was going to be more striking oriented. It ended up being the back take that he used, but uh, kudos to him. He played the point system in order to win the fight. So sometimes that's the important part is not necessarily going and delivering some great fight is being able to go out there and secure the victory. Right. But, uh, but now you struggle because, Volkanovski is an eight to one favorite and Shemaev is a minus 650 favorite. So you need to add somebody. And there was just nobody really else on the card that I liked. Ian Gary, I just didn't want to trust him that much. Uh, and nothing else went right for me. So it really wouldn't have mattered anyways, for the most part. Mike Malott, Mike Malott should have been there, but I had questions, I guess. Anyways, it's a coulda, shoulda, woulda thing. In this case, Silva should win. Yeah, could win, should win. But don't want her on my top ticket for obvious reasons. There right, we got Pat Sabatini taking on TJ the Truth Laramie minus four thirty five Sabatini plus three thirty Laramie. Who you got here, buddy? Yeah, this one's difficult for me because on one hand, I think Pat Sabatini should have his way. the The line is off; like I don't think it should be this wide out. But on the other hand, TJ Laramie is one of these kids that is a really solid, talented kid that, given the time off, could come in here and could put, pose some problems. Mainly, if Pat Sabatini can't get the fight to the ground, his striking I don't think is going to be I don't know. It's tough. On one hand, I think if the fight stays standing, Laramie would have the advantage. On the other hand, Pat Sabatini seems to maybe have a little bit more durability, a little more grit. He's a little bit older. He's a little bit stronger. He's a little bit bigger. And I think all these things are going to ultimately be the determining factor. So for people who don't know TJ Laramie, he was going to be Canada's next phenom. I know we actually talked about Mike Malop being Canada's next phenom last week. The difference is 
Mike Malott was in his 20s, right? Whereas this kid was like 14 years old and he was competing at grappling tournaments, smashing people. His little brother, Tony, who fights for LFA, will be in the UFC eventually. Very, very talented, right? Uh, they're just like, you know, their dad had them in training at a young age. That's all they did. They trained. They trained very hard. They trained on a high level. They trained with tons of UFC veterans. And they've both gotten way better. His own career shows, you know, three wins to start out. That Vince Murdoch split decision, total bullshit, right? Total bullshit. Should have won. It's in Michigan. It, Vince Murdoch's from Michigan, right? Even the hometown Michigan fans booed it. TJ Laramie's like 18, 19 years old, fighting a dude that would eventually make it onto the Ultimate Fighter and whatnot and the Contender Series. So he was fighting good guys right from the get-go, but he found his limitations, right? This Alex Morgan, who's a welterweight out here, lightweight welterweight, right? He was able to knock him out both of their meetings, right? He had some setbacks. He eventually makes the UFC. He looks good. And then the Derek Minner fight, this is the one that caught me, is that you know what Minner's going to do. He's going to try to grab a hold of that neck. You know you're going to have to mind your P's and Q's, but Laramie's still so young. They, you got to make mistakes to realize where you went wrong. And he presses for the takedown against Manor, who basically just bides his time up against the cage and pulls guard on the guillotine and submits him. That's not the problem, right? Young kid making mistake, not the problem. The problem is, is that when you see him in the post-fight, because you're standing there waiting for the referee to raise somebody's hand, when you're standing there in the post-fight, then you realize, oh my God, this guy's not a featherweight. He's five foot five. That makes him the shortest featherweight in the division. He did start it early on in his career at 135, had trouble making the weight, competes at 145, and he's just not built. He could get away with it on the regional scene, in my opinion. In the UFC, these guys are just way too big. Derek Minner is, by nobody's consensus, a big 45. He's not. He's not. Watch both of them when they're standing in the middle of the ring getting a hand to be raised. He's twice the size of TJ Laramie, who has almost no physical muscle definition. Now, Laramie has done a fairly good job of now taking off a year and a half. I know he's been doing strength and conditioning. I know he's been grinding hard. He's working with world-class guys, as he always does. But I think that his long-term problem is and always going to be that he's too small to fight at 145 pounds. And against a guy like Pat Sabatini, who is just an absolute wrecking machine of a grappler, like he's probably going to physically muscle you to the ground, and then you're going to be in a world of shit. So at that point, that's where I would have some, some problems. But Laramie, on paper, might have a bit of a striking edge, and he might, on paper, have a bit of a wrestling edge. And if he could use both of those things to keep the fight standing, sprawl and brawl him, show that the year and a half has both aided his game and his maturity as a fighter, he could put the proper game plan together. He could pull off an upset. And he's the kind of price tag that's almost worth like, ah, do I want to have a shot? But I think size does matter. Against Pat Sabatini, who's going to be narrowly minded, thinking grappling, 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 that's the winning game plan. That's probably where this fight takes place is these grappling exchanges. And then I think Pat Sabatini should get the victory. So I don't agree with the price tag, but not enough for me to pull the, the trigger on the Canadian. Yeah, I uh, I tried to beat some of the line movement early. I took Pat Sabatini. He was minus 350 at the time uh, as a f part of a four-leg parlay. Um, fair, I kind of saw fair. a lot of the same things. I just think, yeah, even though it's short King Spring, uh, I, I, I do think that uh, Pat Sabatini does have some physical advantages. He's never been subbed. As long as he's just consistently going to the takedown. Like, if this fight stays standing, we're in big trouble. Um, yes, we could be. Because the volume just really isn't there for Pat Sabatini whatsoever. He needs to be getting takedowns. He needs to be getting into guard, holding position, doing enough just not to get stood up and rinse and repeat. And that's kind of what I am expecting from watching, like, the Tucker Lutz fight, like, that's kind of the game plan I think we go back to here. So before some of these, I knew some of these lines were going to get kind of crazy. And 
And then I start dipping into so many props and stuff and those props don't come through. So I, I, yeah, Pat Sabatini is on the, the four leg parlay. It's like two to one. Um, as we go down the card, I'll tell you the other pieces. And obviously at the end of the show, I will tell you the, uh, all four of them in one, but moving on down, we've got Devin Clark taking on William Knight at heavyweight because William Knight pulled an absolute stunt last time out. Um, well, he was supposed to fight Max Grishin, who's like way taller than him. You know, I mean, William Knight is. He did fight Max Grishin. He just came in so heavy. Thick with like four five C's. Like this guy, this guy's a this guy's a boss. Like he's short for the division, but like he's so thick that it's like I there there is no move to middleweight. I don't think for him, and that's totally fine. But he came in. He took it on short notice, in fairness, but he came in at 218 pounds. And everyone, like, it was kind of like the most eye-opening. It's like, you came in 12 pounds heavier than the allotted amount, and you're 5'10", light heavyweight, taking on, like, a 6'5", Russian. It was insane. It was insane. And then it was a pretty mediocre performance. You see the limitations with him. It's like, if someone can maintain distance pick him apart with part with strikes like he's got power he's got pop he's able to muscle around some people and this could be a situation where that works in his favor because if you remember when Dana White found Devin Clark on uh, Dana White looking for a fight the first thing he said to them or said to him was you look like a middleweight I don't think you're a light heavyweight now he's fighting at heavyweight against William Knight It'll be interesting to see the weigh-ins first and foremost on this because I struggled to see Devin Clark being much bigger than 220, 225 um, when he comes in. And who knows what thick Willie's going to come in at. But I like Clark, I think, in this spot as long as he doesn't get clipped. The chin has always been a bit of a liability. Maybe cutting less weight will help that situation for him. But, yeah, it's kind of like knockout or bust for William Knight as far as I see it. Um, the pace, cardio, um, and, yeah, being able to push that pace, get some takedowns, ride top control. I think that all is in Devin Clark's favor. So am I rushing to the book to lay minus 170? Uh, not until I see what happens at the weigh-ins between this. Like if there's a 20-pound weight advantage for William Knight, I'd probably be a little bit – a little bit scared to do so. Um, but yeah, I'll pick Clark. Uh, but weigh-ins, I think, are really important. Even though they're heavyweights, usually he- heavyweights' weigh-ins aren't very important. But I want to see how these guys really match up um, on Friday afternoon. Uh, what's your take here? It, yeah, I mean, listen, it, it's two guys. This is the argument for why there should be like a UFC cruiserweight division. Is both guys, I guess, are a little bit too big for 205, and at the same time, they're just too small for heavyweight. Like in comparison, I thought initially, I thought huge missed opportunity to do Chris Barnett versus uh, Thick Willie because who doesn't want to see that? It'd be a good time. Here's the problem: is that Chris Barnett cuts down to 265 pounds. So yeah, he's only five foot nine, and it makes sense to make a five nine, five ten guy fight he's got like a 40 pound weight advantage. So it's just, it's not really a sense, a sensible fight to put together. I, I, I get it. And with Devin Clark, yeah, you're going to have to see him at weigh-ins because you mentioned it yourself. Dana White tells the guy at uh, the UFC looking for a fight. He's just like, dude, you're, you're a middleweight. You need to drop down. You could fight in the UFC. And he agrees. And he debuts in the UFC against Alex Nicholson at 185 pounds. That was his debut. 
but he got knocked out in the first round. And then he says, you know what, bad weight cut. You know, I, I should be fighting up 205. But you see the size of this guy's legs, man. It's like, Jesus. Like, I bet you he could fight at heavyweight, but it's going to be in that 220 range. And the thing I th- think he'll have success with here is that he doesn't have a great chin, but William Knight doesn't really throw a ton of shots. Like, mm-hmm. he'll throw some decent power here and there. But for the most part, he's a little bit lackadaisical. But Devin Clark doesn't mind his grinding guys up against the cage. And that would be the path to victory, just grind William Knight up against the cage. He's shown the Grisham fight. You know, he, he had a 10, 15 pound weight advantage over Christian in that fight. And yet he easily got controlled. He was a smaller man. He didn't really have much to show him. I don't know that his top game is really all that good if he was able to muscle the fight to the ground. And I don't think Devin Clark's going to get taken down from him. He's got the wrestling edge. So he just needs to press him up against the cage, bide his time. He's really good at landing short little knees in the clinch as well. Short little strikes to just, just to show that he's active and he is busy. But it's just going to be chipping away and just grinding away at him. And for that reason, I would think Devin Clark does enough to just take him down the stretch and end up winning a decision. But again, this is a card that there's a lot of these greasy spots where I'm not super confident either way. And at the same time, Clark has had chin issues in the past and fighting at heavyweight against a big guy like William Knight, not necessarily big in stature, but big in just muscle mass. Like if he clips you, you're going to be in a lot of problem. And you could kind of get a sense that he could knock out Devin Clark. But I think more often than not, it's Clark just pinning him up against the cage and landing short shots. So that's the path that I'll go with here. I'll take Devin Clark. Devin Clark, by decision. Panny Kianza takes on Lena Landsberg. Minus 425 Kianza, plus 320 Landsberg. One of the other legs that it was minus 300 at the time, so it's been moving super hard. So it's Pat Sabatini, Panny Kianza. Stand by for further confirmation on the other two legs. Of that parlay. These two already fought. It was Panny Kanzad's third professional fight way back in 2012. This one really just comes down to, I think, you have fighters kind of heading in two different directions right now. Um, Panny Kanzad has been making improvements. We've seen in the cage, like going tooth and nail with Raquel Pennington. Very, very close fight. Pennington looked pretty damn good this past weekend against Aspen Ladd. So, you know, that's a decent even even though it's a loss it's against a good opponent um obviously Landsberg can potentially land some takedowns in this spot but uh, without being too rude and I'm gonna sound pretty rude and I'm gonna probably take a a little little thing out of your book on this one Leon Landsberg hasn't fought in two years she's 40 years old uh, an ageist Paul I know big time ageist <laughs> She just seems pretty washed to me as far as I'm concerned. Um, uh, if she's not able to absolutely dominate the grappling, and we've seen Panny Kanzad against like Raquel, you know, be able to hold her own for the most part, um, not get held down, not get pinned down, not get controlled all that much. Um, I just don't think there's really much left in the tank for Lena Landsberg. Uh, is it possible? Yeah, that like she could hold her up against the cage. Maybe there's a strength disparity that I'm not. I don't really necessarily see. I I suppose, but uh, if this fight stays on the feet, Kanzad's gonna dominate in terms of the number of strikes thrown. And yeah, it's like kind of cage control or takedown control or bust for Lena Landsberg. And at 40, I'm an ageist, as you just called me. I just don't see it. I think she's, I think this is the end of the line for Lena Landsberg, the elbow queen. Haven't seen too many elbows from her recently. So 
yeah, Kianzev for me it was minus three hundred, four twenty five. We're starting to we're starting to cut off all my perceived value, I think, from the line though. So get in while the getting's good, I suppose. And I don't even know is the getting still good on on this number at minus four twenty five. Pat would say no because it's women's MMA and it's uh, that's a Pat Mayo move. Yeah, the move is to try to get on this one early if you could. But again, soft openers and a lot of books will limit your action while they really see what the public wants and the public wants Penny Kianza. And yeah, that's a move. It's actually a passing of the torch spot because you got Lena Lance, you got two Swedish Muay Thai stylists taking it on each other. The one, the difference is Lena Landsberg's 10 years older, 40 years old. She was Penny Kianza 10 years ago, breaks into the UFC and it's like, well, she's got this European Muay Thai style. You know, she can put pressure on people. She'd call her the elbow queen. She could put some damage, but her grappling just never really got to the level. She's good in the clinch, but her cardio is not great. She's got some physicality to her, but again, it's like a Muay Thai clinch game, right? Once you get throwing in trips, once you get take, going takedowns, once you get muscling her up against the cage, she's limited. But beyond that, it's her output. Her output's a problem. Now, Penny Kianza's had like an up and down career. Back in the day, top prospect, top Swedish prospect. Then she hits the LFA scene and it's like bust. Then she gets down to the ultimate fighter. She makes it to the UFC and she's looking good. And I think there's some things that you can like to her game. But again, this one comes down to volume. So if you want to look at it from a volume standpoint, in four of her last fights, she's put up huge numbers. She landed 98 against Jesse Jess Rose Clark, who's a better wrestler than Lena Landsberg. She landed 103 against Betch Kohea. She landed 92 against Sinjara Eubanks who's certainly a better wrestler than Lena Landsberg. And that one was the eye-opener to me because I bet uh, Penny Kianza in that spot thinking better striking more output, but you knew she was going to get in bad spots. You knew she was going to get taken down. And against a good grappler like Eubanks, how do you come through with that? And so she gave up two takedowns, but she was able to get back up. She put the volume on her. She fought a hard three rounds. At this point, she's looking good. She beats Alexis Davis throwing up a career best 124 significant strikes. So again, just rolling here. And then you run into... Raquel Pennington. So she actually did outstrike her 50 to 48. The thing is, and as you alluded to from Raquel Pennington's performance this weekend as well, is she's rugged and she's good in the clinch and she's good at pressing you up again and just kind of neutralizing how much damage you can effectively get off. So landing 50 against an opponent like that is much different than landing against somebody in the open field. And Lena Landsberg is probably going to be more often than not in the open field. She didn't look good her last uh, couple of performances. She hasn't fought in a couple of years. She is 40 years old. And again, she's just going to be slower with less output. Uh, technique, you know, I can't say it's any more better than Penny Kianzad. I think Kianzad's going to be in this one throughout and not enough of a grappling edge to say that she's going to rely on that to beat Penny. So yeah, yeah. Adding her as part of a parlay when you could get on it makes a lot of sense. Great move. The worries, like Pat Mayo would say, it's women's MMA, man. And it's not, this isn't like a slight favorite. This is like a big enough favorite. Then, who big. knows? If we think it's going to be 15 minutes and we think it's going to be a striking battle, then could it not, in theory, be a 15 minute greasy striking battle that could go either way? We see it all the time. We see it all the time. Hopefully, just not this time. And Penny makes it fairly clear and gets the decision victory. Well, here's the thing. Now, now I can kind of reveal the whole thing. I want, I, I wanted to get some AJ McKee belly action because I think he's really the future. I know Patricio uh, Freite is, you know, one of the the greatest featherweights um, in Bellator history at at the very least. He's he's up there. He's obviously a stud, but I think AJ McKee is absolutely the future. 
I was like, you know, I'm sick of all of these these chalk numbers getting away from me. So yeah, I added Pat Sabatini, Fanny Kianzad, Dracker Close, and then AJ McKee. It pays just a touch over two to one. Uh, here's the real real thing with uh, with Dracker Close versus Brandon Jenkins. Minus five fifty was minus four hundred on on that thing. So I kind of predicted the line movements hard on these uh, on these three UFC fights. Uh, Dracker close, low volume, hasn't ever been the greatest. Obviously, he's coming off of a knockout loss against Benil Dariush, but like that's a that was a big step up in competition versus a legitimate top five guy in the division. Brandon Jenkins made Rujong look like the second coming of Habib Nurmagomedov in that fight. <laughs> like it, he is absolutely like knockout or bust here. He has some flashy techniques. Maybe he can connect with the chin. Obviously, Dracker Close used, you know, before last fight, we would have said, hey, his chin looks pretty good. He's been in there with some quality guys, taking some quality shots, so on and so forth. The volume is always a little bit of a problem. But, I mean, it was a very, very woeful performance against Zhu Rong that I, I just rewatched it and I was just like, I have to fade this guy before this line gets out of hand. So Jacker Close is on that parlay with AJ McKee, Pat Sabatini, and Panny Kianza. Pays two to one or paid two to one for me. It's probably less now and those lines keep moving. But I cannot I won't be picking Brandon Jenkins or you. I, I doubt it. No, no, yeah, no, not at all. I mean, I think this is another good spot where I think the line opened, Dracker close like minus 250, and now sits Dracker close like minus 550. So, yeah, yeah, good on you to just pull the trigger early because you knew the line was going to head in that way. And one guy you got Dracker close, another, he's been off a couple years, not for you like Lena Landsberg, but he does maybe have a little bit of ring rust. But at his best, he was a not a contender, but a fringe contender. He was fighting other big-name guys. He shows fights with Mark Tia Casey, whom he beat, Lando Venata, Bobby Green, Christos Giagos, all good enough victories. His losses to David Tamor, whatever happened to David Tamor, by the way, he lost to Charles Oliver three years ago. That snapped like a huge winning streak for him, and you never saw him ever again. Crazy. But David Tamor and Benil Dariush. Now, you mentioned Dariush fight, first time he's ever knocked down his career, first time he's finished in his career. He had six, I think he had seven straight fights go to decision, mm -hmm. and then this Benil Dariush fight, he's caught for the first time, he's knocked out. He's inches away from knocking Benil Dariush out. What yeah. a fight that was, dude. They both do the stanky leg. Like, oh, my God. But MMA can be a bench. And you know what? It's a game of inches. And unfortunately, he's on the receiving end of it. But he's fighting good guys, and he's having decent enough results. Volume a little bit low, like you said, and is more of a decision guy. Doesn't have that big X factor of power. Doesn't have that big X factor of relentless grappling or a big submission game. But something that's well-rounded, durable, and can go through the pace. The thing with Brandon Jenkins, and it's right in his nickname, right? Uh, he's the the human highlight reel, right? The human highlight reel. And you look at his fights, that's that's how he wins ball. He throws up a big flying knee, throws a spinning back fist. Uh, his, that's kind of how he goes out. He shows his Jordan Hinman spinning back elbow, right? The Jacob Kilburn fight on PFL, he's he got a fast start, but it looked like he was on his way to losing that one. He hits a, a switch, a flying switch knee knocks him out and then he can do wrong it's on short notice so what does he do he just starts throwing a bunch of whack techniques the thing is is now you're moving up the ladder now you're fighting better guys 
and they've got you scouted out. And he was mad scouted out. Zurong's only like 19 years old. He's like 20 years old. Like he's still green. You could catch a guy like that, but he saw everything coming. And I think by the numbers, Zurong took him down five times, but incorrect. He took him down three times, and Brendan Jenkins fell to the floor throwing like spinning back fists the other two times. He got a he got a kick caught, and he just fell to the ground. Now you want to give him a pass because it was short notice. So maybe he just he thought the only way I can beat this guy is by landing something crazy. And that's what he fought with. He's training out of Las Vegas, has some decent training partners. At the end of the day, if you can't even beat Zuron, who's like 21 years old, then how are you gonna fight some of these more established guys? And Jakar Close is that. He's got a wrestling advantage, he's got a striking advantage, he's got experience advantage, he's got an advantage in pretty much every department. The only red flag is he's been off for two years. And he got knocked out for the first time in his last fight. So if Chin's compromised or he's not the same guy he used to be, maybe he gets caught by some crazy technique. But probability suggests that's not going to be the most likely occurrence. And we're trying to bet on the most likely occurrence, which is Drakkar Close. So I think he did a good job of beating the line on that one. And most people jumped on this one, which is why you're seeing a 300-point line movement in a matter of like three, four days. And not even just that. It's moved to minus 800 at some like trendsetters in the industry so that minus 550 is probably not going to stick around either um, which is starting to get into banana peel territory against a guy like brandon jenkins the human highlight reel who throws just crazy stuff maybe he connects um but yeah once you start getting up to 10 to 1 it's just like well does he maybe catch him <laughs> one out of 10 times maybe the NBA playoffs mean next-level basketball. Get ready for all the action by betting the play-in tournament with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. New customers can bet $5 on any team to win and get $150 in free bets instantly. You clinch a win no matter what. All DraftKings Sportsbook customers can also bet on NBA hoops with same-game parlays. Combine multiple bets from the same game for a bigger payout. The more legs you add, the more money you can win. Plus, for each day of the play-in, get a risk-free bet up to $10 if your same-game parlay does not hit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code DOP. Bet $5 on any NBA team to win their game during the play-in tournament and get $150 in free bets instantly. That's promo code DOP at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. See show notes for details. Rafa Garcia taking on Jesse Ronson. Minus 120 Garcia, plus 100 Ronson. I almost forgot that Jesse Ronson was in the UFC. I know that after his UFC debut, a great, uh, you know, first round finish. Knocked, uh, knocked Nicholas Dalby down. And then Wasn't his debut? Second second run with well, the company? Was, but yeah, yeah. Go on, go on. That's what I meant. His his return yeah. from... Because he hadn't been there since like 2014, right? Yeah. Um, you know, the second... His second debut. Um, and then obviously that was... He, he got busted for steroids. And now he maintains that he... Well, everyone. You get caught with steroids in this game. Everyone always says that they that they aren't on the gear. But anyway, um, it was a really pretty good performance. He looked, he showed a lot of skills in all assets, all, all aspects of the game. Um, it, it's an interesting spot, obviously coming back. I feel like Rafa Garcia, if he's able to stick to the wrestling here, 
and able to stay out of trouble in the submission grappling, he should be able to ride this one out. Like if he, uh, against Chris Grutzmacher, well, he had five, five takedowns, not in Levy, seven takedowns. To my knowledge, I don't believe Rafa Garcia has ever been submitted. He has not. So that's kind of where I'm leaning on this one. Obviously, he's a uh, Jesse Ronson, Canadian MMA hero. Hero may be the wrong word. Legend, um, especially in Ontario where you're from. So you know more, way more about him than I do. You're from Ontario too, Paul. Are you yeah, kidding? but I'm out on the Are east. Are you kidding me right now? You where are, you're from. You are... Pat, what did you do to this guy he's you're... been there for like six months he's brainwashed <laughs> he's an east coaster you got an alexander keith uh seltzer behind you there no now? but like cody i mean in this respect one you know more about the canadian regional mma scene considering you're a matchmaker for multiple promotions over the years you matchmake for maybe not necessarily jesse ronson but a lot of his like teammates and stuff end up being in contact with you're way more into the game i just read the odds off of the sheet people show up for you kids so yeah my ontario let me just call up my ontario uh mma expert cody saftik uh, where do you sit on garcia versus ronson yeah, so Jesse Ronson's almost like a Chris Curtis in the sense that he's one of these dudes that fought a really good guys outside of the cage, fought way too many times, racked up a long, lengthy record, and never got his dues. Like, why isn't he not in the UFC? Like, why would – how's this for a run? And I've never seen it since, and I've never seen it – or I've never seen it before, and I've never seen it since. He makes his debut against Michelle Prezeris and loses a split decision. His second UFC fight against Francisco Trinaldo, he loses a split decision. His third UFC fight was against Kevin Lee. He lost a split decision, and he was released from the promotion. He had three fights, three split decisions. Prezeris Trinaldo Lee? <laughs> what? It was like, different. Who, whose wife did you hook up with? Why are they mad at you? That's a murderer's row for some dude making his UFC debut. Like, my God. Wins good fights outside the UFC. Again, losses. Tiger Sarnowski, Beltro standout, longtime Russian prospect. Matt McGrath was a longtime Canadian prospect. Matt Dwyer, UFC veteran. Bounces between 55 and 170. Never real. It looks like he never realizes his potential. Similar to Chris Curtis, signs a PFL. And they're tough matchups there. He loses to Nathan Schultz, moves up to 170, loses to uh, Nikolai Alexikin. These are, Nathan Schultz won a million dollars in the tournament. He was a tournament champion. Nikolai Alexikin up a weight class. You know, one FC veteran, just veteran of the game, strong, good, durable, very well-rounded, extremely shredded and ripped up Russian. Tough spot for Jesse Ronson. So cool to see him make his UFC debut. A fight he has to take on short notice. A fight he, again, has to move up to 170 pounds, up a weight class. He's never won a fight at 170 pounds before in his career. He's like 0-3 at 170. And he knocks he knocks out Dolby, takes his back and chokes him. Mm -hmm. Double performance. I mean, beautiful work, beautiful work. And Ronson's always had a really slick striking game. He comes from that long pant kickboxing background, moves his head off the swivel, very technical, uh, very sharp. I mean, you've seen him fight guys like Shane Campbell back in the day in the Canadian regionals, and Shane Campbell's a Muay Thai champion. Shane Campbell's slick as they come, and he just puts a clinic on him. The guy's really tight. He's really technical. Problem is, is that his career has been largely stalled out due to politics. Same thing as Chris Curtis. So when you can get a big plus money price tag on these guys, they're very well experienced very well established and they're good to go problem with him is that he was on some like bca diet and i don't know it caused something to flare up and he got a positive test 
So he's been sitting on the on the sidelines for the last two years, but doesn't have a job, trains all the time, right? Teaches classes, trains. You know he's chomping at the bit. You know he wants to get back in there. And he's never gone to Vegas. He's never gone to American Top Team. Never gone to a big gym. He's literally always trained in the confines of London, Ontario. And he's put together some excellent performance. So I don't think it's going to hinder him by any stretch. This is where I think he's a live underdog here against Rafa Garcia. There's a possibility that Rafa Garcia is actually terrible. We just don't know it yet, mm-hmm. right? So <clears throat> Rafa Garcia is a tiny little man. He's only five foot seven, and he used to fight at 145 pounds. Okay, fights at 145, fights at 145, beats a bunch of Estevan Payans and Eric Gonzalez's and Humberto Bandanais. He's fighting on the Cabache um, South American regional scene, which is at times not the best indication of how good a guy is. And then he fights Nazrat Hackpross. That's the one fight where we give him, you know, stock increase. He takes the fight on relatively short notice. He gives him a performance. His cardio looks good. His mm-hmm. output looks good. It looks like this guy could be okay at 155. It's been downhill since then. The Grusmacher fight, he starts off well, and then, oh my God, the wheels fell off. He gassed out so hard. He was the biggest favorite on the card at minus 330, I believe, or one of the biggest favorites on the card at minus 330. And allowed Chris Grutzmacher, who's not very good, very limited, to just put a clinic on him with pace and superior striking at 155 pounds. Then he fights Nathan Levy, where he got seven takedowns, like you mentioned. And then Nathan Levy would just get back up. And for the record, Nathan Levy took him down five times. The fight got greasy. The fight got close. And all of a sudden, he didn't look all that good to me at 155 pounds. Now this five foot seven former feather weight is jumping up to 170 for the first time not going to play in his favor should play in ronson's favor i think up a weight class he's not going to be physical enough to just continuously take him down whenever he wants to strike more often than not he might have a little more output he might have a little more drive and a little more aggression but ronson should be a little bit sharper and a little more technical i think ronson finds the mark you know either tries to play matador the best he can or keep the fight standing when it does get into these clinch positions and outside of that back up and chew him apart so there's two canadians on the card i already bet against laramie can't do it twice here. Got to go Jesse Ronson's slide dog money. So Rafa Garcia's nickname is Gifted. Are you, You're saying that's fake news from the sounds of Well, it. Jesse Ronson's nickname is the Body Snatcher, and I think he's going to snatch himself some body and put a clinic on this guy. So well, thank you. Uh, is it going to be a greasy decision? Quite possibly. But give me the guy that fights at 170 over the guy that is – yeah, knocked out Dalby, who's had a who's always had a chin, has always been very, very durable. I mean, it was a and dominant, it was a dominant was a performance. Win. It was a great win, yeah. to be perfectly yeah, yeah, honest. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, you, you got me. You got see. That's why I bring in my my Ontario MMA uh, specialist, Cody Saftik, uh, for those exact go. type of spots. Uh, gonna add Ronson to the card. We got Bo- uh, Martin Budai taking on Chris Barnett in. In an absolute, uh, this this fight should be hilarious um, as long as it lasts. Uh, Budai minus two twenty five. Chris Barnett uh, is plus one eighty five. I mean, Bar- I was on Barnett against Jean Volante. That was good times. Pretty hilarious fight. Volante came in looking horrible, like like he hadn't trained in in a year and a half. Like it was, he was looking bad. At heavyweight, like you know, beer gut, like it was, it was just a bad look all the way around. Chris Barnett, crazy spinning back fist. Uh, well, he's like five back f- spinning back kick. That's what I meant. Um, uh, big time flip celebration after the fact. I mean, he's a five foot nine 
heavyweight who weighs like 262 pounds. He's a big boy. He's a big boy in all the wrong places. Martin Budai, six foot four. Uh, I think uh, if you watch Budai and you watch his contender series fight, I mean, I'm not so impressed. Like I watched him versus Camille Minda uh, from Octagon 25, and I wasn't all that impressed with the standup. He does get a nice second round TKO finish. But, like, his stand-up looks, like, a little bit rudimentary. I could see Chris Barnett causing us some problems. But it's that Lorenzo Hood fight where just holding uh, Hood up against the cage. Like, I thought Hood was going to – I thought Hood was going to tap due to, like, knee strikes from, like, all the knees that he was just taking to the quad. Um, I feel like if you go to the end of Volante versus Barnett, the last, like, 20 seconds of that round – Volante actually gets Barnett up against the cage and Barnett kind of does nothing. Now, maybe that's because it's the end of the round. He's like, let's not waste any energy, that type of thing. But if that type of exact scenario plays out, Budai showed in the Lorenzo Hood fight, then you can just hold him there, control him there and land, you know, knees and elbows in close in the clinch and uh and pay off that price tag of minus 225 but it's a crazy heavyweight fight with one guy who throws like spinning stuff all over the place you would never expect him if you saw him walking down the street to be that guy um the under is absolutely jacked under one and a half rounds is minus 175 I don't know. It's crazy. It's a low-level heavyweight fight. I don't think either one of these guys has big long-term potential in the division. I feel like I want to say like Dogger Pass, but that's just probably because I just I like the energy that uh, that Chris Barnett brings to the cage more than anything. I definitely can see the path where Budai takes him yeah holds him up against the cage and just unleashes on him and Barnett's not able to do anything he's just completely swarmed um but yeah F it I'll uh, I'll go with I'll go I'll say dog or pass low level heavyweight fight dog money what's what's Barnett by knockout that could be extra spicy B- Barnett by knockout plus 350 we'll see when more options open up this week because uh, that's not even open at uh, DraftKings Sportsbook yet. We'll see when more options open up. Maybe maybe I can have a little sprinkle on something silly like that, but should be an entertaining one. Not one. Low-level heavyweight fights. Variance through to the max. So, uh, yeah, let's let's say dogger pass, but not very much confidence here. What about you? Yeah, you know what? I, I, I'm just a very firm believer that Chris Barnett is a freak show fighter. He's a freak show fighter meant to come in for a quick spectacle and then go on his way. But someone to a Bob Sapp and someone to other freak show fighters, they're not really UFC caliber. They're not meant to be in the UFC. And they go in and deliver an entertaining performance, but longevity and an actual serious run is just never really going to be in the cards. I was shocked he made the UFC to begin with. Here's a guy who's been fighting since 2009, right? 2009, he's been fighting for 13 years. He's fought all across the world, largely in Japan. And they're freak show fights, Paul. Get a load of these records, right? 33 and 38. Um, 15 and 15. Uh, 1 and 2, even as though he was 12 and 1 at the time. 2 and 3, even though he's 13 and 2 at the time. 4 and 2, 4 and 3, 4 and 3, 3 and 2, 4 and 5, 5 and 3, 
he just fights low level guys for the most part. And incredibly, because again, I've been watching this guy for a long time, man. Uh, Hung Mang Myung, right? It's Road FC 38, 2017. He fights him. He weighs in at 258 pounds. Okay. He's five foot nine, by the way. He weighs in at 258. He rematches him four months later. He tips the scales at 298.3 pounds. <laughs> he put on 40 pounds in four months. And by the way, got TKO'd in the second round again. Like, he, he's five foot nine, can weigh as much as 300 pounds. Alistair Overeem's used him a lot in camp as a sparring partner and mostly to work on ground game. Because if you can get this guy off of you, chances are you can get a lot of guys off of you. But he's a Taekwondo black belt. He's athletic. He's got the spinning hook kick. He's got these flashy strikes. He could make something happen. But I remember Robin Black and I had a conversation a long time ago, and he said, if fighting at, if being five foot nine and fighting at heavyweight was feasible, there'd be a lot more of them. And he's 100% sure, uh, tr- uh, true on that. How many other five foot nine heavyweights have you ever seen? They just don't really exist. I think Jeff Monson might have been five nine. He was my boy back in the day. But it, it doesn't exist for a very you know clear cut reason. Now he can get away in freak show fights, but when you're fighting actual heavyweight contenders, it's going to be more of a problem. By the way, after those fights in Road FC, he loses to Alex Nicholson. Alex Nicholson weighed 220 when he came into that fight, so Nicholson was giving away 70 or sorry 50 pounds to him and knocks him out in 40 seconds. Like not a good look. He can beat low end guys. But, of course, he struggles when he moves up in competition. So fast forward here a little bit to his UFC debut against Ben Rothwell. Well, Rothwell's legitimate enough as a heavyweight that it's easy for Rothwell to just control this guy, outgrapple him, press him up against the cage, and then he hits a five-finger guillotine choke, right? The go-go choke, his mm-hmm. go-to move, which he hadn't hit in a long time. I nailed but that you really one. Do see, yeah, you did nail that one. And Rothwell's not even with the UFC anymore. He's a little bit older. He's a little bit war-torn. And that was his move. And even he can hit that one move on Barnett because again there are levels and Barnett's not at that level he was like now, turning get- his back and running away in that fight too like it was it was a bad look I it probably really bad look. it's probably unwise to bet him I, I I'm well, a fan was- I'm more of a <laughs> yeah, fan I probably shouldn't bet it. you are fair you are enough. you are I'm bringing like- up some really good points his his uh his win before he got to the UFC he beats this Ahmed Tajanu Shihu and the guy's O and O so he fights low level guys he gets smoked up by Ben Rothwell and looks terrible and I actually bet him against John Volante as well under the pretense that well at least Volante is not a heavyweight at least you can finally fight a guy that's a little bit closer to your size and so and again you nailed this one John Volante shows up fat and out of shape. He already announces pre-fight he's going to retire no matter the result. And he doesn't look like he takes it seriously. He's got a big old droopy gut on him. And he wins this, uh, the first round on all three judges' scorecards. <laughs> and then he gets hit with a wheel kick in the face in the second round. And Barnett wins and does a backflip. Or uh, was it a front flip? He front did a big flip. front flip onto his front ass. Front flip. Nailed yeah, yeah, the yeah. landing. Nailed the landing. Yeah, yeah. It's right like on a, the ass. Yeah. It's one of those UFC strike NFTs. It's probably like not going to be worth anything in like a few years. Um, because of like, because of who we're talking about here, like Chris Barnett is not going to like win a champion. Like if you have a Hamza Chamayev one, you you're sitting pretty right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a really, really funny one because what a performance hilarious. Yeah. Spinning (laughs) wheel kick. And then the Sully is just amazing. Hmm. I mean, he's a character. He's a fun guy to have. Yeah. It's a freak show fight. 
but we love freak show fights here. Maybe we don't bet Absol on them. Absolutely do. And there's my problem is that Budai actually looks like he might have a little more longevity in the division because he fought an excellent game plan against Lorenzo Hood. He Lorenzo did. Hood's not very good, but have you seen this guy? <laughs> like, oh, he's shredded, dude. You don't want to stand in front of this guy. You want to just push him up against the cage, neutralize him, and take his soul. That's what Budai did. Did an excellent job of controlling him up against the cage and just beating on him with these short shots that add up. Now, when you factor that Budai is an actual heavyweight taking on a five foot nine Chris Barnett, weight aside, he should be able to control Barnett up against the cage and just slowly grind on him. Barnett then is going to get tired, and Budai should have a little bit of a chance. But to your point earlier, Barnett is a much better striker than Budai. Budai mm -hmm. is, is striking not good. He needs to get in the clinch early and often. If he stands at that range, not only is he susceptible to get hit by some spinning technique, he's actually just susceptible to getting hit by a straight right hand or an overhand because he's not that good of a striker. But if he fights the right game plan, I think he gets the job done. So I will go Budai, um, but with Barnett, he's a freak show. He'll bring the entertainment. He'll bring the fight. I guess who knows what could happen, right? Yep. I do have a bet on this next fight. Uh, we've got Trey Ogden taking on Jordan Leavitt. Uh, Ogden can be had for minus 130 at DraftKings Sportsbook. Leave, leave it is a plus 110. Watching a little bit of tape on this. I thought it was particularly interesting. The Thomas Gifford fights because Thomas Gifford came into the <laughs> UFC completely flamed out. And he just, he just falls into guillotine. Like just kind of accepts it. Kind of a bad look. He gets a lot of submission wins in his own right. Uh, obviously, we know we'll leave it. Got great, great grappling. Everything else seems to be a work in progress for him. I took the under, and it was minus 115 where I took it. Under two and a half rounds. Um, I think someone gets subbed here. Uh, I can't really quite decide who. If Trey Ogden gets top control, he's got better ground and pound from that position. He's definitely, I think he's a little bit more of a complete fighter. Levit has the more, um, more flashy and... Uh, Ex, uh, what's I don't even know the exact maybe more flashy more dynamic submission game um, to his name I think someone gets finished in this fight so I bet it at minus 115 and then because you know rest in peace the Pichel whisperer um, maybe because I lost a bunch of Pichel bets at this one book in particular they moved it to plus 105 and I got disrespected I got disrespected I, so I doubled down I doubled down, took the plus 105. So I'm, I'm in at like minus 107, under two and a half rounds, Trey Ogden versus Levitt. I, I just, watching those Gifford fights, I'm like, if this guy does this against Levitt, he's going to put himself in a, in a whole world of trouble. Maybe it turns into a sloppy stand-up affair. Nobody gets taken to the ground whatsoever. Lick my wounds, take my L, and move on. But uh, I think there's a finish here. In terms of a winner, I'll lean towards Trek, uh, Ogden because I do think he's a little bit more of a complete fighter at this point in his career. What about you? Dude, I think this one might go to decision. I think it'd be greasy. I think, it could, I, th I think it could go to decision. I honestly do. Here's my reasoning on this one. So uh, Trey Ogden is a very strange fighter. He's got 11 finishes on his record, six rear naked chokes, and four guillotines. His losses, meanwhile, have come to one rear naked choke and two guillotines. It seems like he's a Derek Minner type fighter where it's bang or bust with a submission game. Either he's going to catch you early or you're going to catch him. 
<laughs> but after losing that last fight to Nick Brown, he goes to uh, Glory MMA and Fitness with James Krause, and I think they started to put some better game plans together. Yeah, one, we one said this three... about Min we said that about Minner though. I know, I know, but this no is a winnable happened. fight. No happened, it. I know, but 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 this is this is what I'm getting James at. James right? Krause so when can't you look save at his... everybody. No, no, that is true. James Krause can't save everybody, and maybe Trey Ogden's not that guy. But from my vantage point, especially when you watch his last fight in particular with Jake J. Okanovich, his striking looks improved and his wrestling is better than Jordan Levitt's. So here's the problem with Jordan Levitt. There's only one thing he can do, which is grapple. He doesn't have the wrestling to get the fight to the ground and he does not have any modicum of striking in his back pocket. So if he can't take Trey Ogden down, he's going to be forced to strike with him and he's going to lose that fight. Now Trey Ogden, I don't think he's ever knocked anybody out. I don't think he has a knockout win on his record. Does he? Anyways, I don't think he's finished anybody by TKO. So I don't think he's going to catch Levit, who's actually durable. I think it's going to be grappler versus grappler. He usually the finishes. Difference is going to be. He yeah, usually finishes with the submission, but in those fights yeah. before this, he is landing like some decent ground and pound. That's the biggest difference his, I saw between these guys. His striking to me seems to be better than Jordan Levitt's, and then Jordan mm. Levitt's has just had a very weird career because if you tape study him before he gets to the UFC, he doesn't look good. And you would bring that up all the time, like ah, these spots he doesn't look very good. And he took a uh, unanimous decision over Lucas Newfeld. Debatable that he even won that fight. This Izzy William fight doesn't yeah, work that in that one was fight. Really the Levon Lewis fight in LFA, he loses the first round against Levon Lewis, Bavon's uh, Bavon's younger brother, and then eventually catches him in the second. But that's that's the thing with him. He's got a bit of a submission game. So he beats Matt Wyman with the slam. But then the Claudio Puelas fight, he starts off well enough. He gets the takedown. He has his, you know, grappling advantage, I guess, in the first. But then he just completely falls apart, man. Oh, my God. He's not physically strong enough to take guys down. So he just ends up flopping. And Claudio Puelas just takes him down, neutralizes him, stuffs any submission attempt, lands a little bit of ground and pound, and then beats him second and third round fairly clean. It's a very bad Jordan Lever performance. Now Jordan Levy gets Matt Sales, who's been off for two years, right? And doesn't cut weight particularly well. He came down from like 210 pounds to 155 or something. Like it was a ludicrous weight cut. Hasn't been in two years and is known to have bad cardio and bad grappling. So what happens? Levy just creates a bunch of stupid scrambles that against the average guy, you're not going to work. But against Sales, it completely gasses him out to the tune that Sales shoots a, a takedown of his own and Levis just snatches him up. Levis doesn't need long the snatch of a submission he's got a great guillotine got a great anaconda very long very flexible he could go to mission control he'd snatch up a triangle he could fish for an arm and an arm he's good that way but i think ogden out of a camp that's known for good game plans is just gonna stop sprawl and brawl he's just gonna use his better wrestling better strength to push this man off of him and then outstrike him if the fight does hit the ground bad but not hot lava you know you know how to grapple good enough that you could be able to neutralize them but I think the reason why it would go decision is Levitt's hard to knock out. Hard to knock out, hard to submit, and he fights a Ryan Hall-type game plan where he's, like, flopping around most of the time, right? And that just kills time off the clock. So I could see it being Ogden, Ogden by decision, and that's kind of where my head's at ever so slightly. But, again, not a fight that I've got a ton of confidence in. Well, I hope you're wrong. I hope someone dies. Fair enough. For yeah, my well, money. Well, for Alexei my Olenek money proved that. Well, I don't know. Those Gifford fights, man. That just looked like that looks that looks like just bad decision making, yeah, yeah. and we'll see we'll see how it all shakes out. If I lose, I lose. But uh, uh, watching that happen twice is just like man, this, this is, in a minute. Both this times. guy is a liability, and he's taking on yeah. a good submission grappler in in Levitt. So 
And Levitt hasn't really been, like, cracked by anybody half-decent. I don't know if Ogden's half-decent. I don't know. It's Yeah, I mean, I'm He's on it. anybody else. I'm on it, but um, you make some good points for why I shouldn't be on it. All right, we got Estella Nunez taking on Sam Page. Sam Hughes, minus 210 for Estella Nunez. Uh, Sam Hughes can be had for plus 175. I think we have a general rule on this show. Never, never Sam Page. So I, I, I imagine you're picking Nunez in this fight. Yeah, Nunez as well. Could it be a greasy M- women's MMA spot? Potentially, quite potentially. But yeah, I think that there's some better stuff that you can like about Estella Nunez. First and foremost, when she debuted in the UFC, it was a three-year-long layoff, right? So were you expecting her to look awesome? Were you expecting her cardio to look on point? Like, it, it's a three-year-long layoff, and now you're making your UFC debut. Carnalosi is ripped up. She's very physically strong. She's a tough grappling, grappling stylist. And I thought that uh, Estella Nunez did job in the first first round in fact this is actually it's interesting to look at the numbers on this fight so she in the first round outstrikes her 31 to 18 almost doubles her up wins the first round by my account second round she still outstrikes her doubles her up 18 to 9 against carnalosi but carnalosi's hitting these takedowns that's the problem with with nunez that i can tell so far is that she gives up just like easy money takedowns and she'll give up a lot of them Carnalosi in the third round, again, outstruck 13 to 9, but again, two takedowns. That ends up with sealing up the deal. And then as she gets a rear naked choke and she submits her. Nunez gasses into the second round, gasses into the third, gives up easier takedowns, and eventually gets caught in the rear naked choke. But her striking looked good in the first. Her body looked good in the first. Because of the three year long layoff. Like, there's something there. There's something that could be worked into a decent enough fighter. And this will be good for her being that coming back from the or, or coming a, a quicker sh- turnaround, getting back into camp, getting that experience. If her cardio is even good enough to win two of the rounds this time before gassing out, I think she'll be okay. Sam Page, meanwhile, I mean, I want to, part of me wants to give her a bit of a pass and that she's fought some decent enough competition. Tisha Torres, Loma Luke Bume, Luana Pinero. It's how she's losing this fights. I mean, against Tisha Torres, Tisha's never knocked out an opponent ever. She's got one submission victory in all of her pro wins, and even in six and zero amateur career, sorry, seven and zero amateur career, had no finishes. And yet Tisha mauled her and basically caused her to quit. Her corner was like, "Yeah, we're cool with you guys stopping this. All right, let's just get out of here." It's a bad look, right? The Loma Lugume fight. Loma's a former 105 pound fighter who's giving up size. Sure to God, if you're going to beat her, just lean on her and take her down. No, 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 no. The smaller Thai fighter Lugume takes Sam Page down three times. Four times. Bad luck. Bad luck. Four times. <laughs> bad Sec- luck. Second bad coming luck. of and, Habib. And then against Luana Panero, it's like, well, Panero's actually a good grappler and her wrestling's decent enough. So, again, I want to give Sam Page a pass that it wasn't like it was a bad uh, competitor. It was good level talent. It's that there's nowhere that she has an ability to pull the fight in her favor. She just outgunned everywhere. So now she's in a bad spot. She would have signed a four-fight deal with the UFC. She went 0-3. The division's thin. The UFC's opted to give her that fourth fight on the deal. And if and who is, yes, 0-1 in the UFC and Nunez. But I just think I've seen what, what, what I've seen. Estella Nunez, better striker, more physical. So how does the fight play out? First round anyways, I think Nunez is going to piece her up. Sam could try to turn the tables and shoot the takedowns, given how easy Carnalosi got them. But has Sam Hughes ever even scored a takedown in the UFC? She was getting taken down by Loma Luke Bume, who did I mention is a Thai fighter who was fighting at 105 pounds? So is she going to go out there and take down Estella Nunez, rinse and repeat over the course of three? Maybe not. 
but she has a cardio advantage. So watch for this one to get greasy down the stretch. Nunez needs to win the first two and then gas out and who cares? Probably doesn't get finished in the third regardless. But uh, I, I do think that she should be the, the established favorite. She is. That is who I'm going to be taking. But you get the feeling that it's not exactly just a walk in the park. Right, we got Alatang Heli taking on Kevin Kroom. Minus 170 Alatang Heli. Kroom could be had for plus 150. I mean, I went back and watched Gustavo Lopez versus Alatang Heli. It's like, I am convinced. Put my tinfoil hat on right now. Alatang Heli bet the draw in that spot because round three, I mean, round one was pretty close, but like he had busted up Gustavo Lopez's eye pretty good. Um, obviously a little bit close, but, uh, he could have, he could have been felt like, I think he lost in terms of the actual numbers, but he, uh, the, the shots that he landed caused damage on Gustavo Lopez. So he's up basically two, two rounds going into round three, Gustavo Lopez, good on him knows that he's probably in this type of situation. He starts going for broke, lands some good strikes, gets them up against the cage. And when they're up against the cage, there's like five fence grabs. And Keith Peterson is right over top of him, telling him to stop. He's like, stop that, slapping his hand, stop, stop. And then eventually, I mean, I think I was on Alatang Hali in that spot. Eventually, Keith did what he had to do. It's like, it was so egregious. He has to take a point. And we end up getting a draw uh, when all is said and done with the third round being a 10-9 for Gustavo Lopez, minus a point, 10-8, 28-28 uh, on the scorecards. Um, Alatang Ali has always seemed pretty durable. Um, I think the key for him here is I think he's going to be able to land takedowns and land them more or less at will. He's obviously giving up some size. Kevin Kroom is quite tall for the bantamweight division, which kind of just helps the um, wrestling ability of Alatang Hali. He's able to take Ryan Benoit down four times. He's able to take Dana, uh, back, uh, Bakary Dana down three times. Wrestling should be in his back pocket here. Um, on the feet, I don't think there's any... Uh, yeah, you have like Brian Kelleher taking down Kroom six times um, last time out. Take him down. Stay in the guard, stay out of trouble, don't get subbed. He hasn't been subbed since like 2015, like way back on the regional scene. I think uh, Alatang Halib is the side here. I don't know if I'm going to get it for, to it from a betting perspective, though. What about you? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it just comes down to what it'd be so easy to explain to a guy, right? So easy to explain to a guy. I'd say Alatang Halib via translator. Remember that first fight with Dan and Baccarel? Oh, yeah, yeah, remember. I said, remember you shot seven takedowns and you got three of them? <laughs> Good times. You won that fight. You won that fight. Remember when you fought Ryan Bunnoy? Yeah, yeah. You shot 12 takedowns. You got four of them. You won that fight. You won that fight. And you fought Casey Kinney. You, uh, you shot zero takedowns. You know, you stood in front of him and got your body kicked to mince meat mm -hmm. without at no point attempting one singular takedown. And then remember the Gustavo Lopez fight? You shot one, one, the whole fight. Could have grinded on him. Could have made something happen. You win when you wrestle. You lose when you don't. Because your volume's dog shit. His volume is 36 in the Dana Baccarat fight, 47 against Bunway, 46 against Casey Keeney, 36 against Gustavo Lopez. You've seen him in four fights. 
he's never eclipsed 50 significant strikes in a fight. The mm -hmm. volume's not there to just win a striking battle. But when you sprinkle in the takedown, that's how you win rounds. Win rounds is a necessity in winning a fight. That's what he needs to do. Getting away from that's the problem. Against Kevin Kroom, here's going to be his biggest issue is that he's 5'5 with a 66-inch reach. Kevin Kroom's 5'11 with a 73-inch reach. So Kevin Kroom's packing a 7-inch reach advantage and a, you know, a, a healthy 6-inch height advantage. Mm -hmm. He's a much bigger guy. And his volume, even though his striking technique is <laughs> not very good, <clears throat> he's going to be a longer guy. He could sure. just throw some flim-flam garbage out there and outwork you. Where Haile Alatang will win this fight, sitting down on some big punches, backing him up, getting a hold of him, ripping him to the ground. You even saw Brian Keller. Brian Keller never fights like that. When he fought Kroom, it was like, these takedowns are just too easy. And he would sit and guard. And Kroom actually outstruck Kelleher by the numbers in that fight. But when you're striking off your back, same thing with Vince Bichelle. In my heart-of-heart -heart bias opinion, I thought Vince Bichelle... Uh, beat, won the third round against Madsen because Madsen just held, but yet he held him down the whole yeah, time Vince did and did nothing. nothing. Pichelle's landing short shots, short little elbows, throwing up an armbar, throwing up a leg lock, yeah. trying to scramble to get up, and Madsen just lying it's on him. Man. So it's so hard. It's so hard. It's so hard to win off of your back throwing strikes. So. <sighs> and that's that's the main thing here. It's very difficult to win off your back. So Haile Alatang's not getting caught by some triangle from Kroom. And even if Kroom's landing short elbows, short shots, Haile Alatang should be easy money takedowns. Good enough top pressure, good enough cardio, good enough pace, good enough durability that he could just win this fight right from guard. It should be easy, but he needs to fight the proper game plan. Yeah. Shoot the takedowns again, dog. Shoot the takedowns I mean, again. He, if he, he does that, I think he gets. He pissed that fight away against Gustavo Lopez. Like he had that in the bag. Yeah. He was gonna win the decision, and like it was, it was so like being on that side. I couldn't even be mad. It was just like. Keith did everything he had to do. It's just like, stop that. Stop that. Slapped it. Like, he did it, like, five, six times, like, over the course of, like, 20 seconds. That's why I think that he bet the draw. You're not going to be able to convince could be, me. Could be, dude. Could be. He must have bet why the draw. Why else would you do that? Why else would you do that? Like, you literally, he threw the fight away. Um, you're, allowed, you you're allowed to lose that third round. It's all good. You, you went, you know, you took, like, an obscene number of significant strikes against Casey Kenny. Um, so it's like, we know that the durability is there for you. Even if you get beaten up a little bit in that round three, it's like, he did the one thing. He's like, don't get a point removed from you. Just hold on for dear life in this fight and you'll win it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's probably that poor decision-making makes it really tough for me to get to like actually betting him this weekend. But yeah, the path to victory, as we just talked about is right there. Takedowns, sit and guard, yeah. stay busy enough to not get stood up, rinse, repeat, boom. One saving grace that I would say he also has is when he's fighting these bum game plans. He's training at a UFC performance institute, Shanghai. Doesn't really have a good track record so far in the UFC. For this camp, he's been at a Fight Ready in Arizona, which is a grappling heavy gym known for having some of the best guys in the roster who are also, you know, fight good game plans, good game plans, Good coaching staff, Santino DeFranco. I, I think he's in the right place to just fight the right game plan, dude, and just wrestle him. Camp would have largely been wrestling, guys. Just go out there and do exactly what you've been doing in camp. Should be able to win against Kevin. And finally, no odds uh, right now on this one. Fight was just announced this afternoon. Munir Lazez takes on a short-notice replacement, Andre Lusa. 
Lizez was supposed to take on um, my boy, Eliza Zaleski Dos Santos. And uh, Zaleski Dos Santos pulls out. Andre Lusa, you may remember him from Contender Series. He took on Jack Della Maddalena. He lost the fight, but like he didn't look like a complete scrub out there. And Jack Della is a promising, uh, promising guy uh, on the rise in the division. Munir Lazez, I haven't exactly had a great read on him. Um, looked like a, looked brilliant out there against Abdul Razak Al Hassan, and then gets absolutely starched by Warley Alves in his follow-up fight. We haven't seen him in 14 months now. Um, uh, without any odds, uh, where do you see this one landing? Do you have like a prediction for where the odds should open up on this fight? Yeah, I would think that because of recency bias and because of the Sanford MMA connection, that would probably be a slight favorite towards Angelusa. Again, he's out of one of the more popular camps right now. Guys like Gilbert Bridge just fought in last week's card. And Angelusa just fought. He fought like what? Like 10 days ago. I just worked the card for Fight Network. XMMA. Yeah, he fought. He fought. Okay, it was 14 days. It'll be 14 days when the fight happens, right? As of right now, it's 10 days ago. He fought John John Howard for XMMA, and here's here's the interesting thing here. So he's a Swiss striker, right? Trains out of Switzerland, has some decent enough wins. That's Rustam Kasanov, and then uh, wins a, loses a split in LFA, wins a split in LFA, and then takes two years off. So he's coming off a two and a half year long layoff when he fought Jack Della, and apparently according to the uh, striking or the uh, a lot of the training staff at Sanford MMA, he's a good striker, very versatile, strong, good shape, young guy, getting better. But that's a long layoff to be coming and taking on a guy like Jack Dell, who, as it turns out, builds good. goods. I took a flyer on the plus money here on Lusa, who was – I got him plus 125. Tapology saying he was only plus 105. Regardless, he was slight favorite. That was the one fight on the card that I got wrong. And I, I knew right then I'm a Jack Della believer. I want some Jack Della. You load up on him on his, in his UFC uh, main – or his UFC debut, and it looks like he's got a promising career. But I'll give Lusa one thing. He's getting just beat up in terms of volume and numbers, but he's not quitting on himself. No. Striking looks good. He looks good. But a long layoff and taking on a world-class uh, competitor it was just a little bit tough to overcome. So now they book him versus John Howard. Well, John Howard's like a 13-time UFC veteran. He's fought some big, decent names. He's fought in a tons of Russian prospects for a bit. Of, the latter part of his career has mostly been fighting Russian prospects and losing, but he's serviceable enough. He'll give you a go. He comes in as like a six to one favorite over John Howard. Comes in, strikes a little bit, and then just goes to a wrestling heavy game plan. He just took John Howard down twice. I can't say he looked great. He looked okay, but he relied way more on his wrestling and his grappling than just out striking Howard. As if he didn't really want tons there now his leg kicks were pretty good his punches are pretty sharp and even though he's a striker who fought a wrestling heavy game plan his cardio checked out i think this guy's durable i think his cardio is okay i think his striking is good i think his wrestling is okay he seems to be a generalist seems to be average in a bunch of areas maybe not a specialist in any one area but serviceable enough the edge the problem here with manu lazez it's the tale of two fighters because it was two different guys that showed up mind you a little bit of medicine both ways he debuts against abdul razak al hassan as a plus 265 underdog no expectations to win ufc view short notice taking on the former ultimate fighter champion right tough brazil tough brazil champion he's got a win over colby covington by submission worley alves is a decent enough guy for a ufc debuting fighter Munir Lazez just painted a picture, man. He beat him up. 98 significant strikes landed, four takedowns. Cardio is much better. He's big. He's long. 
fights an excellent game plan. So now he cashes as a 265 dog, and the very next fight, sorry, that's against Al Hassan. The very next fight against Worley Alves, he's a 250 favorite. But as I mentioned, Alves, not a walkover. He's got the win over Covington. He's got the tough. Alves just came at him hard, hot fire, way too aggressive. And it worked, you know, he was able to hurt him multiple times. He's able to get him to the ground and he was able to put him away. So the Muneer that showed up against Al Hassan in his debut with the takedowns and the striking, that looked good. The Muneer that showed up against Worley Alves, you know, maybe it was a tough spot, but he did not look good. What are we going to get here now coming off another year long layoff? I think it's like a 15 month layoff. He's 34 years old. Are we going to get the best version of him? I'm not entirely sure. So I'm leaning towards Angelusa. I think Angelusa will be a little bit cleaner with his striking technique. Might not have the volume. Land that straight right hand. And I think he'll press the action with the takedowns. Try to grind on Munir a little bit. Maybe try to slow him down. Maybe try to tire him out. And maybe edge him. But probably going to be close. I don't know. Probably going to be a close fight, I think. All right. So what would you set the line at? If I had to set the line, I would say Angelusa minus 135. Wow. Plus 105 for uh, Munir Lizzi. There is a line out there in the in the, in the the space, and it was opened at minus 250. It got bet on the, uh, on the Lusa side up to minus 181, and then money is moving it back. So right now it's minus 225, so... There was someone who liked Lusa early at the number, and money is filtering back in on Lizes. Sounds like, maybe, we'll we'll see where you end up on the PRP at the end of the week, because you know these things can change. Yeah. We obviously have. I didn't even, yeah, I didn't even know that he was fighting, so I haven't done proper tape on Angel Lusa. I haven't even watched back that Jack Della fight, but uh, I mean, it sounds like we're we're shaping up for a Cody Cody Safdick underdog special. be it could be a dogger pass you never know could be all right so what i am on this week i've got a four-leg parlay aj mckee dracker close pat sabatini penny kianzad pays just slightly over two plus 200 i'm on the um you spooked me a bit on it but it's too late to go back now under two and a half rounds in the trey ogden versus jordan leave fight i feel like just someone's someone's getting subbed one of these guys is getting subbed as far as I'm concerned. And I'm going to be adding uh, Jesse Ronson. Um, plus 100 would be pretty good, which is available at DraftKings Sportsbook. Um, as always, Saturday morning or Saturday afternoon, Saturday at some point, I will drop my official final card for whatever I get from weigh-ins. I mean, I'm probably going to stay away from weigh-ins a little bit. Weigh-ins cost me money last week. I ended up getting onto Willie Cat Santos. Well, because Arce looks so bad, but it's like I didn't know nearly enough about Willie Cat. I still think he's okay moving forward, but kind of got onto that play for that reason. I got onto Aspen Lad, which the only play I should have done is bet the under if she looked bad on the scale. She looked good on the scales, and then it, oh, down goes Hezbula. Um, which is probably time for us to go, but she looked good on the scales. And then for whatever reason, I added her. So I got myself into trouble, you know, overreacting to the weigh-ins, but, uh, I will obviously drop my card, my full card as always on Saturday at some point, hit him with the PRP Cody. 
Hit him with the PRP. Vincente Luque is going to be a top ticket guy this week because you can use him to hedge it after that. We're going to go Kyle Barallo. He's our dog number one. Andre Fialo, dog number two. Maribuena Silva, Pat Sabatini, Devin Clark, Penny Kienzad, Jakar Close. He's probably your next top ticket guy. Close Luque. Try to get as close to even money as you can then add your other pieces. We're going to go with Jeff C. Ronson. He is dog number three. Yeah, Ronson's dog number three. We're going to go Budai, Trey Ogden, Estela Nunez, Haile Alatang, and I'm leaning towards Angelusi for the time being. Again, with Muniz, he looked bad his last fight. He needs to shore that up, come back. 34 years old, bit of a layoff. All stuff that would just cause me to not really want to jump on that side. Lusa, meanwhile, just fought like 10 days ago, and it was a 15-minute fight. So, like, I don't know. Hopefully, he took zero damage, but as fighters would tell you, there's no such thing as zero damage. Like, you could one-punch the guy in 30 seconds and break your hand. Like, there's always some inherent damage from a prize fight. So I don't know. What can you do? Anyways, we, we'd officially got three underdogs. Kale Barallo, he's a, you know, plus 120. It's not great. Uh, Jesse Ronson's plus 100. You know, it's not great. Andre Fiala, plus 155. That's decent enough. I think there are good props on here as well. Like if you wanted to chase a Fiala by knockout, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately we need Vincente Luque to win. Uh, I would say probably Bueno Silva to win. Pat Sabatini to win. Haney Kianzad to win, Jakar Close to win. I'm going to still take that floater on Jesse Ronson. Martin Budai, maybe a bit on Treg Ogden, Estella Nunez, Haile Alatang. You could pass on the rest of that stuff. You know, we just want to get our most confident six, maybe seven, and be happy with that. And unlike last week where you had to put three people on the top ticket, this week only two. You'll only need two because it's only minus 165 on Vincente Luque. So that in with uh, Jakar Close together on a, on a ticket, it's going to get you fairly good. So... I think this could be a good bounce back week. I think it could be a week full of trappy spots. What can you do? But if everyone does what they're capable of, I think we're going to end up on the green on this one. Couldn't leave my boy stranded there. Had to pick Hezbollah back up for the end of the show. Couldn't leave him in the garden. Anyway, that is it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. For Cody Safdick and producer Pat Mayo, I'm Paul Shaughnessy saying goodbye and good luck. Oh, oh, oh. Oh.